0: I want to welcome you tonight to our Good Friday service, just to let you know, tonight's kind of more of like a, a time to just meditate upon the cross and upon what Jesus has done for us. What we're going to do right now is we're going to get into God's Word, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what today is all about and why we celebrate Good Friday, what makes Good Friday good, uh, what it symbolizes, what it speaks to us. It's, it's one of the few times throughout the entire um, world um, on the calendar of Christianity that um, most all... Christians actually agree that this is the time that we celebrate, that Jesus died for us. He died in our place. And so what we're going to do tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about what the cross symbolizes, what it speaks to us of, what it's all about, why it's so significant, why it's so important to us. And so what I want to do is I want to, we're going to combine this evening also with the time of celebrating communion. We typically call it in a lot of different ways. You can call it the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, which just simply means praise, um, Thanksgiving, um, there 's time for us to just to gather to really meditate upon the cross, but then also partake of communion. We do communion or celebrate the lord 's Supper actually weekly there 's a lot of different things that we do in our typical weekly worship services we hear god 's word we believe that 's a part of response in worshipping God we sing it 's a part of our way of being able to express our praise and our thanksgiving back to God. And we also partake of communion. It's a way for us to remember what Jesus did for us. And you'll actually find tonight that it is a biblical practice. It's something that Jesus initiated. It's something that the apostles uh, also taught throughout the early New Testament. It's something that the early church practiced. And so therefore, if uh, depending upon whatever tradition that you've come from, if it's something that you've not regularly practiced in your life, uh, we hope to give you a little bit of a background as to how significant it is, and what it speaks to us of, and why it's something that we really want to reflect upon. So what I want to do is I want to read you a passage simply to describe why this is so important. It's out of the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's verse 26, and this is what the Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders, said. He says this, For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And basically, what Paul is saying is that when we partake of the bread, we partake of the cup, it's actually a way by which we proclaim, we speak. Um, the Greek word that's actually used there uh, is also used throughout the New Testament to describe the action that the early Christians did by preaching. So, in other words, there are times when people would go out in the street. And they would publicly confess, publicly proclaim, publicly preach. They would speak. They would announce. You might even want to call it they were gospeling. They were speaking the gospel. Well, Paul actually uses that exact same word. He says, by partaking this bread, partaking this cup, and doing so in a right manner, we're actually proclaiming. We're gospeling. We're communicating something about what Jesus did. Paul was very clear that it, it speaks about the death of Jesus. And so... What I want for you to see is that as we partake of the Lord's Supper tonight, and as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we're actually tapping into an ancient supper, an ancient dinner. Something that was done, that was practiced, that was always significant, it always spoke about something that had happened in history that is so significant and it's actually what we can put our head on our pillows at night and sleep soundly because that we partake of a meal, we eat the bread, we drink out of a cup uh, and we do so because of something that happened, that Jesus did for us. And so what I want to do by beginning to really understand what the Lord's Supper is, there's three main things that I really want to take a look at. And I'm going to just give them to you in the order uh, that... I kind of see them in sort of chronological order, but then we're actually going to reverse engineer this whole thing and sort of take it, uh, we're going to reverse the chronological order and we're going to take it in reverse. So I'll tell you kind of in chronological order what we'll take a look at and then we'll just reverse the whole thing just to keep you guys on your toes. We'll basically take a look at the fact that the Lord's Supper actually connects us, according to Paul, it connects us to something that happened in the past. It connects us ultimately to God's redemptive act in the past. We'll take a look at that. It also, the Lord's Supper, really connects us to God's covenant community in the present. So Paul talks a lot about how what Jesus did for us on the cross created a covenant community, a community of people. We call it a church, a group of people that are gathered together with a particular purpose, a particular desire that links them, that unites them together. And we'll take a look at it in a second here. And then finally, what we'll take a look at is that the Lord's Supper actually connects us to God's restorative act in the future. Something that God is going to do far in the future, maybe even sooner in the future than what any of us have ever anticipated or expected. But something yet to come. It's one of the reasons why Paul says there in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul says that we partake of the Lord's Supper as a means of remembering something, as a means of being a part of a community, until the day when Jesus comes again and we are are reminded of something yet future that's about to happen or that will take place. So I'm going to, like I said, sort of reverse the order of all of this and kind of start from the last one that I just mentioned to you. So what I want to do is i want to take a look at the reality that the Lord's Supper, what we'll be partaking of in just a second here, it actually connects us with God's restorative, Act of grace in the future that means that God is still doing something and yet will do something in the future to finalize everything. We would typically call this restoration or glorification, where God will move in one final act and all things will be restored. We haven't yet seen that, all right? Maybe some of you didn't know that, but it's true. We have not seen the final restoration of all things, that's why there are still wars. And rumors of wars and famines and death and pestilences and you know economic collapses and all sorts of insecurity in the world today is because God has not finally moved yet. God has not finally put all of the broken pieces to right. But one day we have a hope and a promise that He will. And what that looks like is that it looks like a future kingdom that's full of grace, it's full of love, it's full of peace. You see glimpses of this in the book of Revelation where it will say, one day, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. One day, God will actually describe, he describes a place in which there's no more sea. Now, for some, that seems a little bit disconcerting because we love the sea, but then you begin to understand a little bit of the symbolism as to why God would say there will be no more sea. You begin to realize that the sea throughout all Hebraic history and literature was always symbolic that's where evil came from that's where evil went that's where death happened the sea was sort of equivalent to the deep out of daniel's prophecies and out of the book of revelation all the evil beasts originate and arise out of what the sea that's where the wickedness comes from so it's more of a metaphor but the idea is that one day god will make all the wrongs come back to right and god will restore all things and there will be justice there will be love there will be peace There'll be everything that our hearts tonight long for. Everything that will one day come to pass that every single one of us right now currently somehow are sculpting our lives to somehow accommodate. Isn't that true? All of us, every single one of us here tonight are looking for some form of peace in which will bring our hearts contentment. All of us are looking for some form of love that will affirm us, that will bring us comfort, that will cause us to feel as if we're home. And the very fact that so many of us, on a regular basis, are always looking for something, something to satisfy us, something to make us happy, something to just allow us to satiate our pain. It's one of the reasons why we know something's not right in this world, because we're always looking for something. It's one of the reasons why it actually drives the whole technology business. That's why there's always a 2.0 or a 3.0 or an iPhone 6 or an iPad 20. Because we are not content with what we have. We're always looking to upgrade and make something better. Because each new thing that comes out promises us what? Some level of contentment. Some level of completion. Some level of joy. It never works. But we know that somehow something's not right in our lives. Something's not right in this world. And we keep searching nonetheless. And yet God promises a future kingdom in which all these wrongs will be set to right. And that's what we have to look forward to. And so the question really that we have to look at is how is this future restoration possible? Because the answer Because it's something that Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago in which we're commemorating and remembering tonight of which we will actually partake of the bread and of the cup that actually points to. In other words, you can look at it this way. What will one day happen in this world, in the cosmos, in the universe, in which all things will be made to right, in which peace will prevail over injustice, in which love will be predominant over hate, In which justice will reign over injustice, all of these things are made possible because of something that Jesus did for us on the cross. That's exactly what the Bible teaches us. That's exactly why we see this. There's a scene in the movie The Lord of the Rings, but actually, this scene that I'm gonna refer to is actually not in the movie, it's actually in the book. And it's a time when uh, one of the hobbits, Pippin, he's in a city and it's being besieged and attacked. And all of a sudden, right before they expect to have total collapse of the entire city, in the distance they hear a trumpet. They hear the sound of horns. And all of a sudden, another army shows up on the scene and begins to fight for them. And this actually brings about some victory that was just the greatest victory. And in the book, Tolkien actually writes that Pippin, every single time forward from that moment, every time he heard a trumpet blast or heard a bugle sound it always brought him to tears because it reminded him of that day of victory that's what the communion is when we partake of the bread we are celebrating something that will one day yet be absolutely fulfilled of which now we're just simply partaking of the appetizer in other words we will one day experience wholeness because jesus on the cross, experienced disintegration. Jesus was broken so that we who are broken could be made whole. That's the picture of the cross. So again, the first thing that we take a look at is the Lord's Supper connects us with God's of act in the future. And the second thing we'll take a look at is that the Lord's Supper also connects us to God's covenant community in the present. That's kind of an interesting little thing, I'm not going to spend a lot of time to talk about, but in the book of Corinthians, we have this very interesting passage that actually details for us some of the first century actions of the church, or at least in Corinth. This is how they conducted the church services. And Paul talks about when you guys come together, you guys have a meal, you eat, some of you guys, you know, are starving and you come and you eat a lot of food and others don't have any more food to eat. And it would seem as if When they met there, at least in Corinth, they kind of met as sort of a smaller group of people, and their church services were basically centered around what we would call the Lord's Supper. But the way that they had conducted the Lord's Supper, at least in the Corinthian church, was they would have a meal. So they'd have potluck. People would bring their food. they would call them kind of like a love feast. So you'd show up. Maybe there's like 40, 50, 60 people there. And they would meet in a house, and because it was Corinth, it was no doubt was affected by, you know, either the... Uh, Greek or the Roman type of architecture. And so typical houses back in that day, they would have sort of um, kind of an inner court and then an outer court. They would have sort of like these big archways, big gardens um, in which, especially if it was a wealthy person, they would have a very large garden area, sort of enclosed, and maybe a fountain in the middle of it. And in this enclosed area, um, typically what they would do, probably the early first century church in Corinth, when they would meet. They would gather together, they would have a meal, they would sit around, they would talk, they would chit-chat, they would pray for each other. And then at some point in the course of that time, as they gathered, they would begin to break the bread. And they would drink the cup, drink a glass of wine, and they would pass it around and they would talk about, this is what Jesus did for us, and they would remember the Lord's Supper in that particular setting. But what most scholars and what most historians actually would agree upon, is that what was probably happening in the Corinthian church that Paul writes to them and actually rebukes them, is that they're while they're celebrating what they would call the Lord's Supper? What's happening is this group of people are being divided, and again, perhaps because of the way the architecture was set up, or because, perhaps because of the way at least the mindset of the people were, when they would gather together, they would sort of kind of relapse into sort of the social stratification. What I mean by that is that the rich people, or the people of renown, the people who had clout, the people who had power, perhaps the people that were Christians that had some form of ability or wealth or knowledge or strength, uh, they would be the ones that would sort of meet within kind of the intersection. And sometimes the inner part of the house maybe had upwards of 15 seats in there. And so by, by habit, probably the most wealthy people would be meeting in there. And then the rest of the people, the people that were, um, you know, that couldn't speak really well or that were illiterate or they were slaves or they didn't have a lot of wealth or a lot of clout or a lot of abilities... They were sort of relegated to kind of meet out in the outer court, the atrium. So what you had was sort of this classification. You would have the rich, the poor, and they would be separated. And what Paul's writing is that you guys claim to be celebrating the Lord's Supper, but you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper because really what's going on is you guys are doing exactly what's mirrored in the culture. You're bringing these class distinctions. You're bringing divisions amongst yourselves. You're separating certain people because they're not like you. They're not of the same strata as you. They are not of the same social economic classification as you. And so therefore you are distinguishing yourself from them. And what Paul's saying is that you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say, I would actually encourage you to stop celebrating the Lord's Supper. If you're going to do it that way, because it's a mockery. So Paul's very upset about what's going on here. And really I think it boils down to this is that if we understand what the Lord's Supper refers to, what it speaks to us of, is it tells us about God's covenant community in the present. And what it means is this, is that when Jesus, and what Jesus did for us on the cross, is he leveled the playing field. So that there aren't rich people and poor people as being distinct from each other. It's one of the reasons why Paul would go on to say there's no male, nor female, nor rich, nor poor, slave-free, politician, pauper, They're all the same. They're all the same. And here's what happens. To put it into sort of modern day terms, when we as Christians, or claim to be Christians, when we sort of classify or make distinctions, or we say things like this. For example, we have a lot of young people in our church. A lot of young, single people. The majority of our church, by the way, if you haven't noticed, is between 18 to 35. That's the number one demographic in our church. It's a miracle, actually, because a lot of churches in America today are not reaching that group. And so what can happen, for example, for us as a church, is older people that are not part of that demographic can look at the younger people and be like, I'm going to separate from them. I'll hang out with people my age, hang out with people that see things the way I see things, hang out with people that are like me. And what Paul is trying to say, the reversal of this can be true, younger people can look at some older people and be like, I don't want to hang out with older people. I don't invite them in my house. I don't want them to be part of my community group because I came out of a household and I moved away from my family. And I'd rather just be with younger people, not invest myself in the lives of other people, young, old, whatever. And so what happens is Paul's saying is you are classifying each other, you're distinguishing amongst people, you're being discriminatory against people, you're actually not living the gospel. And what the gospel is attempting to do, what God is trying to do through the gospel, is it levels the playing field. When we understand the cross, when we understand what Jesus did for us on the cross, we realize for us to go back and for us to begin to sort of modify and edit and say, well, I'll create a circle of friends that are just like me, that act like me, that think like me, think theologically like me, worship like me, sing songs like me, pray like me, do things like the way I do them, You're actually undoing the gospel. We need to know that. We're actually undoing the gospel. When we deliberately select who we will choose to hang out with and then omit who we refuse to hang out with, we are undoing what the gospel intended to do. This is really serious stuff. The example I would give is this, is that what God is doing in our life, and what God wants to do in our life, is he wants to bring about a synchronization between what we know about God and how we practice what we know about God. And believe me, there's a radical distinction. I'll give an example. In January, I have a good friend of mine, he used to live here, moved away, and he has a business and he does all of his business on his credit card, and so he pays it all off. He's faithful, and he's a good steward, and uh, he gets all these airline miles. And he's like, I'll pay for your trip to come with me to Costa Rica. I'm like, great, I'll go. Sign me up. I'm on board. So um, I went to Costa Rica. I had some good surf, and it was great. Now, if I came back, I'm like, the surf in Costa Rica is amazing. The water's 85 degrees, and in your mind, you're like, that's awesome. I want to be a part of that. I want to do that. So what you do is you go out, and you get books, and you read books on surfing, and you download, you know, videos, and you watch things, and you read Wikipedia articles, and you watch Kelly Slater on Netflix, and you do as much as you can, investigation, understanding, trying to train yourself, teach yourself about what surfing is, and then you go out and you buy the right surfboard for the right conditions, hop on a plane, you go down to Costa Rica, get on the board, you paddle out, you will not, I absolutely guarantee you, no matter how much book knowledge you have, you will not surf well that first day. Absolutely guarantee it. You can't. You don't have the muscle training that's happened yet. You don't have the balance calibration yet. You haven't been, in other words, you have all the knowledge. But you haven't been able to put in any of it to practice yet. So it's possible for you to say, I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross. I have faith in that. I have confidence in that. But it's possible, even though in the middle of belief in that, for you to not practice the full overview of what the cross entails. Meaning, we're part of a covenant community. That's what Paul wants us to understand, is that if we understand what Jesus did for us on the cross, what he died to accomplish, what he died to do on the cross for us, then we would realize that there's a covenant community currently, right now, in the present. So one of the reasons why Paul would say, really go on further, throughout the rest of the corpus of all of his teachings in the New Testament to say things like this. If you harbor grudges, if you harbor bitterness in your heart, or if you're unwilling to show grace or show forgiveness towards somebody else, here's what Paul's trying to say. Don't you realize you've been given forgiven, forgiven forgiveness? Don't you realize that God has not put any measure upon you of the grace that he's poured out on you, but you put limits on how much you'll love others? You put limits on how often you'll forgive, and God was limitless, you don't get the gospel. You don't understand it. And the only right response to that is repentance. It's one of the reasons why Paul says in this passage right here, he says, don't partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. This doesn't mean, sometimes, you know, I've heard people say, you know, you got to make sure you take the communion in a worthy manner. Sometimes we somehow turn that to mean you got to get all sentimental about it. Like, spend some time, get some tears in your eyes, and then you can take the communion. Like, think about it and realize how much Jesus loves you and feel really good inside, and then you go take the communion. That's often how we interpret being worthy. But really what Paul is saying has nothing to do with sentimentality. It has nothing to do with how you actually subjectively feel, has everything to do with how you embody faith and repentance. Because if you get the gospel, then you will trust in Jesus and you will repent from the classifications and the distinctions and the divisions and the unwillingness that we oftentimes have to extend grace to people, even though God was completely willing to extend grace to us, or the unwillingness that we typically have to reconcile with other people, even though God has been more than willing to reconcile with us, who are completely ill-deserving. So what Paul is trying to say is that the gospel, the cross, reveals to us something that God has done for us. And if we understand that, It will change the way that we think about other people. And the final thing I want to finish with this is this whole larger theme of God's redemptive act in the past. And this is what the communion really connects us to. So on the one hand, the communion, the Lord's Supper, the bread, the cup, points forward to a future dinner, future supper, future feast that we will one day have with Jesus, of which every single one of our hearts are longing for. In what you're grasping for right now, currently. Every one of us, whether you're a Christian or not. If you're not a Christian, you're longing for the very things I'm talking about. You're longing for them. You've actually, in fact, I would even go so far as to say, you've actually arranged your heart in such a way that you are pursuing actively for the very things that the gospel says and promises to provide. Secondly, we see how that the, the Communion also links us to God's covenant community. And finally, we see that God's, the Lord's Supper actually connects us with this redemptive act of the past. And so, what we see here, actually, is Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. He gathered together with his disciples in an upper room, and he had a meal with them. And most scholars, most historians would agree that this was the uh, Passover meal. The Passover meal was a very unique, very interesting meal. It was a a meal that most Jews, even to this day, will still celebrate. In fact, a lot of Jews, even that are secular Jews, if you go to Israel today, uh, you might talk to a lot of Jews, some that are Orthodox, actually follow what the Bible says or attempt to or seek to, and then you have what they call secular Jews. And these would basically be people that just, you know, believe to some degree, more or less, some of them actually might even be atheists, and yet they will still celebrate Passover. And it's not so much out of religion, out of religious activity, it's more so out of a historical uh, association with who they are. So what they will do on this night, they will gather together and they will have uh, lamb, they will have bitter herbs, which oftentimes would be like horseradish and then and, um, other types of herbs and they would have bread and the whole entire meal centered around a cup of wine or several cups of wine and bread and a lamb. Those are the three major elements that this entire meal centered around. So Jesus would have gathered with his disciples and says, "Uh, I'm looking forward to celebrate this meal with you. And none of the disciples really had any clue as to what Jesus was about to engage or about to be brought into. had no idea. Jesus knew. Jesus knew that this night was going to be his last meal or his last supper, as we would describe it. And so here's Jesus with his disciples taking the bread, taking the cup, and he's reminding them of an ancient history. Um, And the Passover meal would be probably best associated sort of like a freedom feast, freedom meal. Most Jews, when they would celebrate or partake of the Passover, it was kind of a feast, similar, not too dissimilar, actually, kind of the way that we would celebrate, maybe like 4th of July, Um, Even though there's not a lot of symbolism, and we have like fireworks and hot dogs and hamburgers and things of that nature, where Jews, what they would do is they they would celebrate their freedom, and that's what the Passover meal was. They celebrated their freedom, because on that night, typically what would happen would be a young child in the family, Passover was a meal for the entire family, and they would get the whole family together, and the kids at some point would ask a question, Mom, Dad, why is this night, the Passover night, different than any other night? And typically what would come forth as an answer is that this night is different than any other night because this is the night that God redeemed our forefathers from the oppressor Pharaoh in Egypt. God restored them, God redeemed them, God brought judgment, and God brought redemption. So there was this theme of redemption and judgment that was all throughout, that was interwoven throughout the entire history of the people of Israel. And during the time that Jesus lived, during the night that Jesus was about to be uh, handed over and then ultimately the day in which Jesus was going to be crucified, the Jews were actually looking for some sort of Messiah, some sort of figure that would rise up and be sort of the hand of God to bring judgment upon God's people or to bring judgment upon God's enemies and to bring about liberation or bring bring about freedom. So they were actually looking for a Messiah who would come and bring about these two major themes. Redemption and judgment. So Jesus sits down with his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal. That all of the Jews probably at this very same time throughout all Israel. To celebrate this meal. And most Jews when they would celebrate this. They would celebrate it with their family. So here's Jesus. He's not celebrating this with his mom. He's celebrating with his disciples. And what he's saying here is that you're my new family. If you believe me. If you trust me. You're part of my new family. This is absolutely amazing because some of you have not had a good family. Some of you have not had good family experiences. You need to know that one of the things that Jesus accomplished for you on the cross was to bring you into a new family. For some of you know this. Some of you realize that some of the closest relationships that you have ever developed in your entire life are actually not with blood relatives, but with Christians. People that you have absolutely nothing in common with. People that you normally would not have much relationship with, but they're your family. So Jesus would sit down with them, and as he began to do the typical ceremony with the disciples, talking about this particular night of the Passover, uh, one thing that's really important to note, that at some point throughout the celebration, Jesus takes the cup, and it was typically, probably believed to be what's called the cup of redemption. There are several cups, but one cup that Jesus takes, the cup of redemption, and he lifts it up and he says, this cup is my blood. My blood shall be shed for you. And then Jesus takes the bread. And he takes the bread and he breaks the bread. And he says, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. And so what Jesus does is very common in a lot of ways with regard to the typical Passover meal. But very distinct and very different. Jesus in some ways is sort of breaking the typical tradition. And what he's doing is he's ordering, reorganizing the entire Passover meal with himself as being the centermost part. Redemption through his blood, judgment of being broken, something being broken, judged. Jesus says, takes these two themes of redemption and judgment and he merges them together and he says, this is me. This is what I've done for you. And what Jesus is doing with his disciples, one final thing, is that there was no lamb. This is a unique Passover because all Passover meals would always have a lamb. This one, there is no lamb. Because again, all gospel writers will recognize that Jesus himself is the Passover lamb. And what typically would happen on the Passover night is there in Egypt, the original Passover, what God said is that he's going to bring a judgment upon Pharaoh and upon his armies because God basically demanded Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. God says, these are my people. You're oppressing them. You're taking advantage of them. You're destroying them. You're crushing them. Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh refused. Several plagues came, several plagues later. Then God finally says, the final plague that will come upon the people of Israel, or upon all of Egypt, uh, is what's called the Passover. In other words, the angel of death, this angel of destruction, is going to pass over all of Egypt. And every house in which a firstborn lives or presides will die. Firstborn of animals, firstborn of uh, sons, all the firstborn sons, all the firstborn male are going to die. And God says, uh, and again, you might ask the question, Then why would no Jews die? And God made a provision. He says, every house that takes a lamb and slaughters the lamb and takes the blood and puts the blood around the doorposts of the house, everyone inside that house, it doesn't matter who they are, it doesn't matter if they're rich and, they can't, uh, and they've got ten lambs, or if, if they're poor and they can't even afford a lamb. If the rich, poor, male, female, slave, bond, Egyptian, or Jew, doesn't matter who they are, if they go into the house that has the blood over the doorpost, the angel of death will pass over. The idea is this is that a firstborn was slain so that the guilty can go free. And this is God's theme, and all the prophets throughout the Old Testament all knew. That a little cute, fuzzy, snuggly little lamb can't actually, effectually cleanse someone of their sin. Lamb can't do that. But what all the prophets recognized is that all these sacrifices, all these lambs, were always a foreshadow. They always pointed forth to something that was going to come. A lamb, the lamb. The one true lamb that would come and ultimately take away the sins of the world. That in himself, he would have the potency. He would have the ability. He would have the power. He would have the strength. He would have the purity to actually be able to do it. And Jesus sits with his disciples this night around this Passover meal and says, the theme of redemption and the theme of judgment come together in me. I'm the one. I'm the one who's come To take away your sins. And the picture is that of bread. He takes the bread and he breaks it. And he gives it to his disciples. And says, each of you eat. And as you eat, you'll live. You need to know, very quickly, I won't spend much time on this, but the idea that throughout the Christian history of the church is that there have been two major divergent views on what the communion stands for. Uh, Typically, it breaks down in these two little columns. One, you have the Roman Catholic viewpoint, which oftentimes even overlaps into some Lutheran traditions. And it's the view that what Jesus gave to his disciples, the bread and the cup, and what regularly, consecutively gets celebrated when you take the bread and when you take the cup, is that you are actually eating the physical body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus in the form of bread and in the form of juice or wine. Now, they get that idea because Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, take it and eat. The problem with that is, is that Jesus is holding the bread in his hand and if indeed the bread is the body of Jesus, Jesus hasn't even actually died yet. That's the typical Roman Catholic uh, Lutheran viewpoint. Uh, we actually take, as a church and as Protestants, typically the typical Protestant viewpoint, which is that it's more symbolic, that it's referring to Jesus's body that would be broken. And there are elements of that. But at the same time, the problem that oftentimes typically happens in the Roman Catholic viewpoint is an overemphasis upon the communion, an overemphasis upon that. In fact, the entire mass is centered around that. That's what a priest does. He takes the bread. He breaks the bread. It's his way of actually sacrificing over again the body of Jesus. So if you take the bread, you eat the bread, that's how you're actually saved. That's the viewpoint. You eat the bread from a Roman Catholic tradition and you will actually be saved. Whereas the Protestant viewpoint is that eating a piece of bread is not going to save your soul. Trusting in Jesus will. That's what we believe. Eating a piece of bread will not save your soul, but trusting in Jesus will. So the flip side of this is the Protestant viewpoint can oftentimes belittle the emphasis upon the communion, meaning we don't take it very seriously. We don't think too much about it. It's just sort of a marginal thing that we do in the side notes of our typical services. And what I'm trying to say is this, is that the early church recognized the value of this. And I would hope that we would recognize the value of partaking of the bread. It would be for us like a trumpet blast. That every time we eat the bread, every time we drink the cup, it would take us back to the moment that our Savior, Jesus, literally was broken for us so that we who are broken could be made whole. I want to finish with this thought, and I have a piece of bread right here. I'm just going to give you a picture of this. And the idea is this. As long as this piece of bread remains whole, no one's going to eat it. You can't walk up to I mean, you can. Take a big bite out of it. It would be rude. We wouldn't let you do that. But typically, the way most people will eat bread is they will take the bread and they will break it. And as they begin to break it, they would pass it out. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, as long as I remain whole, you will die. You will not eat, and you will not survive. But if I, the Son of Man, am broken, then you who are broken, you who live lives of brokenness, you who live lives that are fragmented and falling apart, and you partake of me as I give myself to you, and you will live and you will be made whole. And you will be brought into a covenant community of people that just like you have been made whole. And you will be part of a legacy that will one day play into a future hope of full restoration, of which I will even wipe away every tear from your eye. This is the hope that we celebrate. This is why we partake of the bread. This is why we drink the cup. Yes, it's a sign. Yes, it's symbolic. Yes, it points backwards to the redemption of Jesus there on the cross. Yes, it points to the covenant community that we live in in the present and how important and significant it is for us to understand this, that we are part of a family, that partaking in the communion is not just simply for you to exercise your own personal spirituality. It may involve that, it may not be less than that, but brothers and sisters, it's Far more than that. When you eat the bread, because technically if I were to take this bread and divvy it up and break it apart and give it to all of you, and all of you ate this one simple loaf of bread, we all would be partaking from one loaf. The same loaf. The bread that's sustaining you is the exact same loaf that's sustaining me. That because Jesus was broken, we who are broken can be made whole. That we are changed because of the great sacrifice that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. We're brought into a community. This is why the gospel cannot just simply be theoretically understood. It has to be practiced. Lived out. It takes a lifetime to do that. And no one expects anybody to figure it out the first moment they come in and begin to try to figure these things out and understand them. No one will ever do that. But what it takes in order for us to be on that journey again is a life of regular faith and repentance. Faith Repentance. Trust in Jesus, He died for me. Trust in Jesus, He was broken for me. Repentance, I need to ask Jesus to watch me because I refuse to give grace. I refuse to show love. I refuse to extend kindness. I refuse to extend reconciliation, even though Jesus has constantly given me these things in abundance with no restrictions, no reservations, no strings attached. All at the expense of his son on the cross. I want to finish by reading a passage and done. It's out of the book of Mark. Currently on Sunday mornings we're going through the gospel of Mark. And uh, this is the little story of Jesus when he died. I want you to see in the story everything that Jesus prophesied the night before. When he took the bread, broke it gave it to his disciples and says, this is my body. He was, in effect, prophesying within a few 20, short, less than 24 hours, what I'm doing to this bread is exactly what will be done to my body and to my blood. Listen to the story. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together a whole battalion And they clothed him in purple, in a purple cloak, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. This is a way of jest, mockery. They put this uh, purple garment on Jesus. Purple was the color of royalty. And they all assumed, if Jesus is a king, why don't we treat him like a king? Let's put him in purple. Jesus is a king. All kings wear crowns. Let's give him a crown. Let's give him a crown of thorns. Let's give him a crown that actually causes pain. And what they did is they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they drove it into his head. These were long, thick thorns that would have caused great trauma to his skull. And it goes on to say, in verse 18 of chapter 15, he says, and they began to salute him. They said, hail to the king of Jews. And then they were striking his head with a reed and they were spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and they put on his own clothes on him and then they led him off to crucify him. So here they were mocking him. Here they were uh, just forcing Jesus to see and to witness all of this. They were hitting Jesus Uh, Other accounts said that they would put a bag over his head so Jesus did not know when the blow was going to come. And so they would pummel him with their fists. Other accounts, uh, Old Testament accounts, would say they would have ripped out his beard. So by this particular time, Jesus would have been hit, knocked up several times. His face would have begun to swell. If you ever seen like a UFC fight? Some of these guys at the end of it, their face is absolutely unrecognizable. It's all swollen. Their eyes aren't even able to be open or to see anything. They have... Uh, blood, they have saliva, uh, just all sorts of just stuff coming out of their face, out of their mouth, and this would have been the place where Jesus was. They finally strip him of all of his clothes, and so what you have here is a group of people just literally mocking Jesus, our Savior. Literally, Jesus' prediction was beginning to be unfolded. And it says, they led him off to crucify him. Now, Mark does not go into huge detail as to what crucifixion is, and all first century Jews would have been very familiar with it. We actually get uh, our English word, excruciating, from this particular Greek word, crucifixion, because of the excruciating pain that would typically happen. Uh, Prior to the crucifixion, uh, we're told that these soldiers would have actually taken Jesus, and they had him flogged. And what that meant is they would oftentimes take the victim, they would place them on a pole, and they would tie their hands onto a pole, and they would oftentimes bend their body over so it would cause their their back and their uh, skin to be stretched out as tightly as it could be. And then they would take what was called a cat of nine tails, and uh, typically it was a big leather whip that had all sorts of strands coming out of it, and then the end of each of these little tethers would have like uh, little pieces of lead or glass or sharp shards of stone and then the, uh, the, the person that would be doing the whipping would then come to the victim, and they would begin to take this whip upon Jesus' back, and they would have literally laid it across him, and the first few times would have softened up Jesus' body, much in the same way that you would take a piece of meat and tenderize it just prior to barbecuing it. This is what would happen to Jesus' back. And at some point, uh, blood would begin to fill Jesus' back, and his back would become very swollen, and at some point... Uh, while the executioner or the person that was causing this infliction, affliction of pain upon him. Uh, with the cat and nine tails. They would cause these straps and these shrapnel to go into the back. And they would rip the skin off of Jesus' back. It would have been bloody. It would have been horrendous. This is what Jesus would have endured. And then Mark just simply tells us. At this point they led him off to be crucified. Crucifixion was uh, something that the Romans did not invent. It was something that had been on the world scene for several hundred years. What the Romans did do is they basically perfected it. They figured out the way to cause the maximum shame. They figured out the way to cause the maximum amount of pain and the maximum amount of disgrace to come upon the victim. The point of crucifixion was not just death. If they wanted to kill someone, they would have pushed them off of a cliff. There were plenty of those around Jerusalem. That was not the point of crucifixion. The point of crucifixion was to cause great shame, great pain, and great sorrow, and great torture to come upon the victim. They would have taken Jesus and they would have given him some sort of a cross member, or a crossbar, and he would have carried it through the streets of Jerusalem to the point of execution, and then. Once he got to the place, they would have laid the crossbeam down, they would have nailed him to it, so they would have taken some form of a nail or a spike that was equivalent to some degree, more or less, like a railroad tie, and they would have put it through his, uh, his little wrist part, bone right there, and it would have gone in there. If you ever saw the movie, uh, what is it, 127 Hours? Remember when the guy was actually sawing his hand off with a little switchblade? There's a moment when that was actually happening and transpiring where he actually strikes the main central nerve in the body. And they cause the music to be this shrill sound and this excruciating pain. You can see it all over his face. And later in the interviews, he said that, that was the most traumatic, uh, most painful moment of his entire situation. Was when he had to actually cut through his main, um, the, the, the main uh, nerve. That caused that great pain. That's exactly what would have happened to Jesus. This railroad tie would have gone through his wrist into that nerve that caused the most excruciating form of pain. And there, Jesus would have been uh, placed upon the cross uh, in between two thieves, we're also told, and typically they would place the victim in an area that was well trafficked. Imagine right on the street corner of Santa Rosa and Higuera. That was typically where they would take the people or like right if you got off the freeway exit there at Marsh, the main place. So anybody, as they were coming into town, they would look at this person that was judged by Rome and they would begin to ask the question, why was he judged? Oh, well it says right there, he's the king of the Jews. And it was basically a very strong symbol, very strong sign saying, don't any of you get any ideas of following the footsteps of this guy? If you do... This is your fate. You will share the same fate as this king of the Jews. Oftentimes while people were there on the cross, uh, all of the most evil, wicked, disgustingly just sinful people of the culture and society would come out. We're told in all the gospel accounts, uh, collaborated. You had some people there that they were playing games at the foot of the cross. Others were mocking. And others were in absolute despair, Mary being one of them. She saw her son, whom she loved, being tortured. Others were mocking, making fun. And while a person or a victim would be there on the cross, typically it was not uncommon for them to be in just extreme pain. They would cry out. Oftentimes it was their form of trying to get as much retribution back at The other people around them, because other people would spit on them, they would hurl insults at them, they would throw rocks at them sometimes, and the people there on the cross would somehow try to retaliate, they would shout at them, they would curse at them, they would yell at them, they would spit on them, they would urinate on them, they would do anything that they can to somehow retaliate, but we're told Jesus just hung there and really said nothing. There are some words that Jesus will have recorded have said, but none of them were retaliatory. None of them were curses. None of them were mockery. And so here's Jesus on the cross in between two thieves being mocked, excruciating pain, and we're told, and they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexandria, uh, the father of Alexander, Rufus, to carry the cross and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull and they offered him Wine mixed with myrrh, which perhaps very possibly was not what you would expect. Someone has just given Jesus wine to drink to sort of numb the pain. Sometimes they would use vinegar, and they would use vinegar on a sponge as a means of cleaning someone's underside in a public bathroom. So someone got this idea, let's add insult to injury and mockery to this king of the Jews and let's offer him something to drink. And their idea of offering him something to drink was a sponge filled with waste and vinegar. It says, and then they crucified him. They divided his garments among them, casting lots for them and decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when he was, when they were, when he was crucified and In the inscription of the charge against him simply read, the king of the Jews. It goes on down and it says this, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the entire land until the ninth hour. So God demonstrates darkness, thick darkness. A lot of scholars, a lot of Bible critics have tried to explain this away. Maybe it was some form of an eclipse. No one really knows. I think it was just simply God bringing darkness over the land. It was very similar to what God brought upon the Egyptians when it judgment. And the reality is that judgment was coming, but the judgment was not upon the priests. Not upon Israel. It was not upon Rome. Judgment came. And it goes on to say in verse 36... And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And up until this point, you can look at Jesus on the cross and imagine that the most painful thing for Jesus was the crucifixion, was the scourging, was the mockery, was the abandonment of his closest friends who just left him, bailed him was the abandonment of one of his friends, Judas, who actually betrayed him. Straight up betrayed him for money. But the Bible actually tells us that there's even a darker theme, a darker pain, a deeper pain that Jesus endured on the cross. And it was when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which was a direct quote from uh, Psalm 22. For the first time in Jesus' entire existence, the Father whom he had known nothing but intimate fellowship with, didn't answer back. Total darkness. If someone came up to me that I didn't really know, part of this church, and it says, Brian, I don't like you. I'm not going to go back to the church anymore. I'd be bummed. I'd be like, oh, it's a bummer, but I don't really know you, and... It's all good, so <laughs> if 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 my wife came to me and says, Brian, I don't like you anymore. I don't want to be part of your life anymore. I would disintegrate. The value, the depth of pain and despair is directly proportionate to the depth of relationship. The depth of relationship that Jesus had with the Father was inexplicable. Some of us might think, you know, we're, we've been advanced as Christians for a long time. We walk with Jesus for a while, and some of us might think we're more advanced than we really are. We might think we have a really nice fellowship, love relationship with God, but none of us can even come close to the type of relationship that Jesus had with the Father. It was intimate. For the first time in Jesus' existence ever throughout all eternity he cries out to the Father and there is no response. Darkness came upon Jesus. When a person lives in total darkness it brings about Disintegration. Some of you might be familiar with a guy by the name of Shackleton. He's a sailor. He takes a group of guys down to one of the poles, and his group of men get stuck down there in the pole. And for several months, they're in total darkness for almost three months. No, no light. And it says that that was the most excruciating, most painful thing for all of them, was to be in a place where there was no, no light, that you didn't know where pain was gonna come from. At some point, you actually begin to realize you, you don't even need to you know, comb your hair anymore because it doesn't matter. No one can see you. So in other words, you, in darkness, you actually end up losing your very identity. And on the cross... Jesus lost the hand of the Father and experienced a disintegration. Literally, the bread was broken. Jesus did that so that you and I will never and should not ever have to experience that ultimate disintegration of darkness. That's what Jesus did for you. He gave his body and says, It's broken for you. So that you who experience brokenness in this life will never have to experience full, final disintegration. I was disintegrated, I was broken, so that you don't have to be. Jesus brings us into a new family covenant community, and he gives us a promise of a hope that one day all things will be restored. That's what we celebrate when we eat the bread. We're going to worship. We're going to finish with just some songs of worship and singing, and what we're going to do right now is we're going to finish this up by partaking of the communion. If you're here in your family, I'd actually encourage you to, to take communion as a family. Maybe some of you are, are close in your fellowship, in your relationships, in a lot of ways, communion has kind of come to be known in our culture as being something that we just take on our own. And I understand, like I said, it's, it's, it's a nice thing, it's beautiful to kind of feel close to God. But again, really, if we understand the full extent of communion, communion is something that's to be done together corporately as a body. Little pockets of bodies, little pockets of people that are united in Christ as a family. So we're going to sing, we're going to worship, we'll partake of communion, we have the bread and the cup, and you can take the bread and dip it into the little cup of juice, and what I want you to think about when you eat the bread that's broken in your hand, I want you to think about Jesus giving himself to you, the darkness that Jesus experienced on your behalf for you, in order to not just simply save you, but to bring you into a family of other redeemed people. So, what I want you to think about are there people in your life that you are refusing to release or relinquish or to offer forgiveness for? Are there people in your life that you're refusing to show kindness and grace? People that you would say, I would never sit down and have a meal with them. If you say that, if you think that, if you feel that, you need to look at the cross. Because on the cross, you see Jesus coming to you, who are not just undeserving, but radically ill-deserving. And he says, my bread, my body is bread broken for you. I'm going to pray. Let's partake of communion. Let's worship. Let's just meditate upon the cross, what Jesus did for us. Confess sin. Maybe if some of us, that's what we need to do. God, we just thank you for Jesus, for the cross, and what you've done for us. And we want, God, right now just to have our hearts filled with gratitude. And in response, God, come to you. Partake of communion to remember what Jesus did for us. And God, if there's things in our hearts that we need to ask forgiveness for or confess, God, we want to lay those things down before you and ask for you to wash us and cleanse us. Jesus, we thank you that our hope in the future kingdom that is one day to come but has also already dawned, has already begun. God, our great hope is anchored in the great act that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, dying for our sin. He was crushed and afflicted for our sin. That judgment came, not upon Caesar, not upon anybody else except Jesus. He bore our shame, bore our grief, bore our judgment, the judgment that we deserve. He was broken so that we who are broken can be made whole. God, I pray that you would help us to live that, to understand that, to embody that, to demonstrate that. So help us, God, as we go into this weekend, as we begin to move towards Sunday, the biggest day on our calendar, the greatest event of all, when we look forward to the fact that Jesus was not held in the grave, but he rose victoriously over it. So God, I pray that you would help us as we move into this weekend, that Sunday would be a great day, that we would see many people come, we would see many people come to Jesus and come to know your great love. So we just commit this evening in your hands. Commit this weekend into your hands, we pray. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.